Welcome everyone. Thank you for joining us. Um, <clears throat> we have a jam-packed hour for you ahead in covering what's new in our protection from abuse, basically looking at the amendments that were um, created by Act 79, um, which the governor signed on October 12th, 2018, and it became effective, it will become effective very shortly here on April 10th, 2019. It amended two um, statutes predominantly, well, no, solely, the, the Protection from Abuse Act, which is the main focus of our programming today, and the Pennsylvania Uniform Firearms Act. And I can tell you that the efforts to have this statute or these amendments put in place was really um, the culmination of several years of effort, um, mainly to try to bring our protection order statute more in line with the federal firearms requirements um, and prohibitions that are effective from the federal level under the unif or the um, federal gun control act number of organizations worked tirelessly to try to get this passed PCADV ceasefire PA every town for gun safety moms demand action um, I know Plan had um, some involvement as well, and of course the bill sponsored Representative um, Marguerite Quinn. Um, and so uh, nothing ever happens in a vacuum. There's a number of things that ultimately were put into the, um, these amendments that were probably not anticipated at the beginning, and so you will see some new procedures in there. Um, <clears throat> that you might not expect um, and so that'll be um, interesting. I have the chat box up so please feel free to type in, e um, type in your questions as we move through the PowerPoint. Um, of course if you don't have questions till the end that's fine too. I'll do my best though to respond to your questions as we move through. So a little bit of background in terms of why do we care so much about having our, our Protection Order Act um, better mirror the federal gun control provisions. Just want to give you some real stark um, statistics, sort of that highlight that. Um, in America, a woman is shot by her partner every 16 hours. This is in the United States. Um, and about four and a half million American women alive today have been threatened with a gun by an intimate partner. When we look at the mass shootings that occurred between 2009 and 2016, which included uh, the <clears throat> most deadly uh, shootings we've, we've encountered in our history with the Pulse nightclub in Orlando, the Las Vegas shootings, and others, um, the shooters, the 54% of those mass shootings, those shooters killed intimate partners or other family members. And here in Pennsylvania in 2017, 78 of the 117 domestic violence fatality victims were killed with a firearm. And 67 of those were children. 67%, sorry, 67%. So this is really what was the impetus between, behind making changes within the law, trying to see that there's more safety for victims um, because there is an increased lethality risk when we are talking about domestic violence and family violence and the presence of firearms. So that's by way of a little bit of background. 
so like I had mentioned previously, my main focus today is going to be on the PFA Act provisions because from looking at the registration list, most folks I noticed are from legal services programs or programs where I imagine you are doing plaintiff representation and um, protection order actions. And so that will be the main focus, but I do wanna give you a highlight of what was changed in the Uniform Firearms Act. So um, previously, when somebody was convicted of what's called a misdemeanor crime of domestic violence, and it is a term of art that has a specific definition. Our state law mirrors the definition that is in the federal law. Um, when they are convicted of that, it triggers from the federal perspective a lifetime ban on possessing or acquiring firearms. However, in Pennsylvania, our firearm statute, until these amendments were enacted, had no real procedure other than the language that um, offenders had to turn over the firearms within a reasonable period of time, not to exceed 60 days. No follow-up, it really was this honor system that offenders who had these convictions had to know that they were supposed to relinquish their firearms and do it. Um, <clears throat> obviously, they might have faced an offense down the road if they were found to have the firearm, but there was no follow-up. Now there's a procedure that is in place um, a defendant who would intentionally or knowingly fail to relinquish firearms now will commit a misdemeanor of the second degree. And if they get convicted of that, they get another five-year firearm prohibition. So there's more accountability in place, and I, I'm not going to detail the exact procedures that are there, but there is um, lengthy provisions around who they can, who they, who a defendant or offender can relinquish a firearm to and how that has to happen and the accountability angle to that. The new piece that's I think also highly helpful for especially our sheriffs and counties where um, firearms are relinquished but then never picked up again is that the Uniform Firearms Act now has um, created procedure for disposal of abandoned firearms and set forth criteria when that can happen. So this should um, make things easier for those entities that are um, charged with storing and holding on to firearms when they have to be relinquished. <clears throat> okay, so we have one question. Does a five-year start to run at the end of the PFA time or concurrent with it? So, good question. Thank you, Amy. Um, the five years comes at, um, let me just check my notes here. It comes after the expiration of the um, order or after they, if they had to go to jail at the end of the imprisonment. Let me just make sure I get it all correct. I don't want to misspeak. So the five years is years after the date of conviction, final release from confinement, or final release from supervision, whichever is later. So it really does um, go a longer period of time. So good question. Thank you. All right. <coughs> Sorry, I have a little froggy in my throat who doesn't want to go away. Act 79, so the piece, the bulk of Act 79 does address new changes to the protection order, including definitions about 
appropriate law enforcement agency. And what you'll see is that um, with throughout the statute, the new amended pieces, there's clarification that anywhere that you see something that says, you know, or the sheriff should do this, that now it also says, or appropriate law enforcement agency. So sort of spreading the wealth for um, some of the provisions to not just be the sheriff solely as the um, law enforcement agency that would be able to take care of certain pieces of this. And I'll make examples as we go through. Additionally, there's a piece in here now defining what a commercial armory is. Um, and so we will talk a little bit more about that in terms of how it, what role a commercial armory has in our new PFA statute um, a little later in the PowerPoint. Okay, so one of the new pieces that is really geared towards safety of victims involves this court or police accompaniment. So when a plaintiff notifies the court that they have the reason, they have reason to believe that their safety is at risk, the court shall direct either state police, municipal police, or the sheriff to accompany the plaintiff, either to go to the plaintiff's residence to retrieve personal belongings, or to accompany the plaintiff while the sheriff or the order is served upon the defendant um, by the sheriff or a competent adult. So this is the kind of thing where um, traditionally a victim might seek a protection order, get the order, but not be able to go back to their home until it's been served. And now this allows the court to say, no, we're going to have you be accompanied so that you're safe to get to the home and then the service can occur. Or um, maybe they're, they're not going to have an eviction or exclusion of the defendant from the residence because it's not they're not on the lease or one of those kinds of provisions. Now they can have accompaniment to go get their personal belongings and be safe from the other other party, the abusive party. So this really does add a safety um, piece for victims. Um, I have a you know I'm sure there'll be training that comes out for advocates because I have a feeling unless you're um, in the position of filing the petitions that sometimes this might not um, play a role. However, I will tell you that the um, the um, period of time that the plaintiff can ask for this is any point from commencing the action by filing the protection order, PFA, up until the granting of an order approving of an agreement at a hearing. So um, it doesn't necessarily mean that just at that ex parte temporary hearing, that's the only time and place that this could happen. It could happen in the interim. So um, if you go into court and there's a continuance granted and plaintiff needs her personal belongings, then this could be um, something that could be looked at. Um, okay, so I have another question in the box. Oh, a couple ones. So Nicole asks, does this allow the plaintiff to have law enforcement at the plaintiff's home if the defendant is evicted and returning to get belongings? Um, the statute only speaks to the plaintiff's safety and it specifically talks about accompanying the plaintiff to retrieve personal belongings or to accompany the plaintiff while the petitioner order is served on the defendant. I think this would be something that um, you know, the, the plain language of the statute really only refers to the plaintiff. And I, I see, um, I can understand the idea of 
of having law enforcement when the defendant's coming, but that's not specified here. Now, if you can convince your judge and ask for it, you know, this is a stretchy act. The PFA Act's always meant to be flexible and about safety. So um, it, it can never hurt to make the argument and see what your judge would do. But um, I don't know that it's, it's definitely not specified in the statute. Thanks, Nicole, for your question. Joseph asks a question regarding he has a client with a temporary PFA um, who was violently assaulted sexually by her partner left for dead in a remote location. Oh my gosh. The DA let him plead guilty to simple assault without consulting her and she's terrified that he will one day retrieve his weapon and kill her. He is willing to agree to a three-year final order, thinking he can get his firearms back. Um, the client wants to have a litigated finding of abuse after a contested hearing so that he'll become a lifetime prohibited party via federal law. Does he have a right to demand a hearing when the defendant is willing to offer a three-year agreement? Okay, well, so a couple, couple things here to unpack. Um, first and foremost, he pled guilty to simple assault. That potentially could meet the definition of um, a misdemeanor crime of domestic violence. So you would have to look a little more in depth into what and how the information behind that. So that would already trigger the um, lifetime ban under the federal law. So Joe, maybe offline, we could talk a little bit. I can give you um, some information um, around what what is a, a MCDV, in fact, there's an ATF bench card I will upload before we're done here um, to the group so that you have that um, information. Now, the other thing is that what I do believe you're correct in pointing out is under this new law, once it becomes effective, is that when you want to have firearms forced relinquished, um, well, so your question is finding of abuse you'll become a lifetime, so the PFA doesn't have a lifetime prohibition on firearms. And so that's, I think you have to be, um, understand that in terms of the interplay of the federal law versus the state law. Um, only the misdemeanor crime of domestic violence conviction or guilty plea is going to trigger the lifetime ban. A protection order only is in a ban for as long as the protection order is in place. So long as the person hasn't ha doesn't have something else out there that makes them um, um, not lawfully eligible to have or possess firearms. So when you're asking about should you go to a hearing, that will have no bearing on a lifetime ban. Um, but what I will tell you folks is that the way this new law, when we get to that piece, it is going to set it up that sometimes people are going to want to have a hearing even if the other side will agree to something. So we'll talk a little bit more about that as the CLE progresses, okay? Thanks again for your questions. All right, police accompaniment, we've, I think, covered that. Great. So there are new notices that are, you know, tit for tat as the statute provides some more protections for plaintiffs, but it also puts in some due process related to um, defendants. And so um, the notifications that are in play here um, include the right to present evidence, the right to compel attendance of witnesses, notice on how to compel witnesses, 
And then the last prong is a right to continuance if a hearing is only three business days after service. So this is the obligation of the court. Um, having looked through the rules of civil procedure, I did not notice that those specific things were listed um, in the notice, but FAD may incorporate them, which I hope they will. Um, and so, I'm sorry, FAD being the PFA database, um, many people refer to it as PFAD. Um, so, just to keep you all in the parlance. And the right to a continuance, so my understanding is that for many communities, courts will grant um, a first request for a continuance, especially for defendants if they're seeking counsel. What this does is it guarantees that when a defendant has only had, has was served and the hearing is actually three business days later, then they are, um, the court will be required to grant that continuance um, to allow enough time for them to do what they need to do to be prepared. Uh, I have another question here. George asks, Jerry asks, what gradation is an ICC? Um, I don't believe, because it's quasi-criminal, that it actually has a gradation, um, because it comes from violation of a civil order. So I'm not aware of a gradation assigned to it for um, when someone violates the protection order and is guil found guilty of an indirect criminal contempt. Okay, so hopefully I'm staying on time. I'm sure Kelly will remind me if I'm moving too slow. Um, okay, so on to the next information, relief. So just quickly, this a whole new section's been added and that pertains to the concept of hearings or agreements and we'll go over that in detail. Um, the statute, did, they did some kind of language cleanup in the section of relief dealing with firearms um, prohibitions with trying to make that language a little bit more reader friendly, um, as well as incorporating places where it was appropriate, they added or appropriate law enforcement agency. So, you know, a defendant can relinquish to the sheriff or the appropriate law enforcement agency. And I, I think some of this is done in practice, and now the law is just um, kind of catching up to some of that practice. Um, and so I would suggest that these changes are not substantive exactly, but really just making sure they're more easily understood and creating a little more avenues in terms of um, meeting what is practically happening when people are relinquishing to the local police or the PSP instead of a sheriff. Um, and so that kind of continues throughout the firearms provisions in um, the subsection regarding relief. Um, one other thing that the court is now required to do is to let a defendant know um, that if they've relinquished the firearms or weapons or ammunition, that there are conditions that can be met wherein those um, items would be deemed abandoned and would be allow the would allow whoever's storing them to dispose of them pursuant to the provisions that are now in the Uniform Firearms Act. So um, again, it's a notice provision to defendants so that when they, they'll know that, hey, if I don't collect, I'm gonna have to come 
I'm, I'm potentially going to lose these. Um, and the disposal process includes, I believe, a notice to them or at least an attempt to notify them. And again, I'm not going to detail that here, but um, I encourage you to take a look at the law if that's something that um, is important for you to know in your practice. Okay, so I have another question. Jillian asked, does this mean that defendants will no longer be able to relinquish firearms to family members or other third parties? Woo! Um, I'm sorry, somebody has me on speaker. I can hear whispering. If you wouldn't mind maybe muting, that would be really helpful to me. Um, so can I just put a pin in Jill's question because we will definitely be getting to that if you can just um, wait a few moments. Foreshadowing warning um, great so next section relief related to a final order or agreement so this is the new provision I mentioned um, and where it sets up two dynamics one uh, what must happen when an order is entered after the judge conducts a hearing versus what can happen when parties agree so let's start with when a judge enters an order it must MUST, big bold, pretty blue letters. Um, order firearms relinquishment. So this diverges from what we currently have, wherein the courts have discretion for either agreements or for hearings to order relinquishment of firearms. This will change. Judges who have a hearing, determine abuses occurred, must order firearms relinquishment. The order must also direct the defendant to refrain from abusing, harassing, stalking threatening or attempting or threatening to use physical force against the plaintiff or other protected parties. Um, so this is a big change, removing discretion when the judge is hearing the case. I don't know um, if that's gonna make, so this may actually have, this may be where you'll see victims wanting to have a hearing in order to have those things be put specifically in the order versus what may happen with a final agreement agreement sorry um, that the court approves in those instances a final agreement may order firearms relinquishment so you could have the same relief and it may direct defendant to refrain from abusing stalking harassing threatening or attempting or threatening to use physical force um, so there may be instances where the defendant's willing to agree to something but doesn't want the firearms relinquishment, but the victim does or the plaintiff does. And in those instances, then it may be going to a hearing in order to have that provision included. Um, so uh, this is sort of the big area that has been changed. Previously, the law really had, um, the language was about the the court may enter any order that would bring about the cessation of abuse and then it went through the 10 provisions of relief which included you know break a breakdown and uh, you know ordering no har harassment abuse stalking threatening um, the eviction exclusion from the home temporary support temporary custody and all you know so those other relief pieces are there still but when it comes to the firearms piece and this um, directing the defendant to refrain from certain conduct, those pieces um, are going to be potentially um, at issue depending on if there's a fire, uh, a hearing, sorry, a hearing regarding the abuse or an agreement. 
Um, so Excuse me, Laurie. This is Kelly. Yeah. I just have to launch the first of the CLE credit polls um, in order for attorneys to get the CLE credit for their participation. I need you to respond to this question and the poll will be up for two minutes. Thank you. Feel free to go ahead, Lori. Thank you. Oh, great. Thanks. So Kathleen Raker asks, is after a hearing defined, does it include agreement without being in the courtroom? Um, so the difference is, um, the idea is that the judge enters the order and doesn't just approve an agreement. So I, you know, the idea that you do an agreement and neither party is coming to court and the judge approves that, that's an agreement under um, final agreement angle. When we're talking about hearing, that's where a judge hears the evidence and makes a determination. However, these words, I will say, are not specifically defined. Um, however, that's sort of the way the act is set forth. So, you know, under 6107, it talks about hearings and the idea being that a plaintiff at a evidentiary hearing must establish by a preponderance of evidence that abuse occurred. You know, the idea of the consent agreements is what came out of 6108 when it previously said that the court may um, enter any order that brings about the cessation of abuse. So what they've really done is they've codified sort of this concept of final agreements versus orders by court. Um, Granted, they both are orders of court when it's all said and done, but one is approved by the court and one is actually entered and derived from the court. Does that make sense? I hope that it does. Um, so, um, okay, so Joe Donegan is trying to clarify what I said about consent agreements. His question is, if the defendant is willing to consent to a PFA, but without the firearm provision, and our client is okay with that, can that provision be excluded from the order? Yes, that's the whole point to this, is that it allows a consent agreement to not include a weapons or firearms relinquishment piece. However, what I was saying before may have been confusing is that if your client wants firearms relinquishment and the defendant says, well, I'll agree to an order, but not to firearms relinquishment, then you will probably need to proceed to a hearing to determine how to prove abuse. So it's going to put, I think, sometimes some pressure on clients. Now, I know some clients are con concerned about relinquishment of firearms because that's a trigger potentially to their safety. And that's why, you know, as advocates, we really need to speak to our clients about all of these different provisions and the relief that's available and talk to them about what's the safest move for them. And really, you have to credit them as knowing what's going to trigger further abuse or harm to them from the abuser um, because they absolutely know the abuser best. And so, that's a place where we really all have to um, look at that. So does this only, the next question is, does this only cover firearms or are there other weapons, crossbows also covered? So A7, that section of relief, includes that the court may order relinquishment of other weapons um, 
or ammunition. So to be specific, that section reads that um, the court may also order the defendant to relinquish the defendant's other weapons or ammunition that have been used or been threatened to be used in an incident of abuse against the plaintiff or minor children. So in the when we're talking about things that are not firearms and that's specifically defined in the statute, like a crossbow, um, hammers, I mean, I even had extension cords um, considered weapons and enforced relinquishment. That's permissible, but it's not, um, it's not something, um, that's still discretionary, I apologize. It's still discretionary to the judge. And there's the caveat that they have to have been used or threatened to be used against the plaintiff. So um, when we're talking about firearms, it's a little bit of a different category because now these provisions say if there's a final order entered by the court after hearing, the court must order relinquishment of firearms, okay? And then, but there's still that permissive piece of it that allows for a court to order relinquishment of weapons like a crossbow, which is the question that was asked, okay? All right. So relinquishment. If the order says that there needs to be relinquishment, then needs to be turned over to sheriff or appropriate law enforcement. Again, that could be a municipal police office or the protection, or not protection, but the Pennsylvania State Police. That needs to happen within 24 hours. This has been the law since 2005. So I know that I've seen some different things that have come out saying this is new, but it actually isn't. The new piece is for the firearm statute. But as far as protection orders go, it's always been 24 hours. And that starts that that starts as of the issuance of a final order or service of the temporary order, depending on if the temporary order is the one that sets the relinquishment order or if it's the final order. Um, so there are some pieces in the statute, like if um, the defendant would have good cause relating to the location of the firearm and needs a little more time, they can request that from the court. They have to file an affidavit with the sheriff and it can only be due to location. But otherwise, if those things are not turned in within the 24 hours, that's when you trigger um, notice to the court plaintiff from the sheriff's office that they were not turned, there's been a failure to turn them in and therefore um, they need to, um, follow up with that, as well as triggering the um, potential charges underneath, under the um, firearm statute for failing to relinquish when required to do so. Okay, I'll just check in. Okay, no more questions so far. Oh, sorry. Uh, so question from Joseph. What would prevent a defendant turning in all except one firearm? How would we know if all firearms were or were not turned in? Uh, so there is still um, the attachment A, which is a place where plaintiffs can outline the firearms that they know of that the defendant has. But there's no registries of firearms um, in our state. We're not allowed to have them. Um, the PFA statute is specifically prohibited from trying to create sort of 
that as well as keeping attachment A from the public view. Um, so this is again an area where hopefully the, the victim's gonna know some of it and be able to um, put into that attachment A all of what should be relinquished. But um, you know, again, the protection order is a tool. It is not a panacea to safety. And so safety planning is always important for victims. And um, in terms of firearms, again, um, we won't necessarily be able to verify all of them, especially if the victim is unaware of how many firearms they have. Um, just know that they, are, they have an obligation to, and if they're found to have firearms when they're um, not permitted to have them, there are repercussions and consequences. Okay, so one of the new pieces that really um, provides some additional relief to plaintiffs when defendants are incarcerated allows for extension of the order. So um, just to kind of bring everyone up to speed, right now the, the statute allows for a plaintiff to request a, an extension of the current protection order in two circumstances. <clears throat> One is to petition the court and prove that the defendant has committed one or more acts of abuse subsequent to the entry of the final PFA, or that the defendant is engaging in a pattern or practice that indicates a, risk of a continuing risk of harm to the plaintiff. The other circumstance is when there's an ICC, indirect criminal contempt, that's been charged. If the defendant is found um, guilty or pleads guilty to that um, charge and the plaintiff makes the request to the court, the court must extend that in that um, proceeding. Okay, so those are the two current ways that that can happen. Now we have a new caveat to the extension. And again, it's focused on the plaintiff filing a petition. But what it does is it pretty much removes the proof end so if plaintiff comes in and um, can prove that or alleges that the defendant has been um, incarcerated, is or was incarcerated and will be released within the next 90 days, or they were just released within the past 90 days, then they can come in with their petition and they are not going to have to um, prove that the defendant committed acts of abuse or engaged in a pattern or practice that indicates continued risk of harm to the plaintiff. Um, so this is a new piece to extending orders that allows for sort of an increase of that when there is incarceration to the defendant to increase certifying the safety of the victim. And this is very similar for folks out there who do sexual violence protection orders. This is very similar to the provision that's in that statute um, around extensions. So um, if you've done anything in that work, this may be pretty familiar to you. <clears throat> so this doesn't quite get us to Jill's question issued earlier, but it's we're starting into the third party world. So um, the new statute provisions create an avenue for a third party to petition the court and ask for the return of a firearm when um, 
that firearm was relinquished by the defendant but didn't belong to the defendant, okay? And so um, there are some conditions. The third party has to prove ownership, I guess, through some kind of receding or other proof or submitting an affidavit. Now, the affidavit um, has conditions. There's certain things that have to be included in the affidavit and is certified by the um, affiant that one, they're the lawful owner of whatever firearms they're petitioning for the return of, that they will not intentionally or knowingly return any firearms to the defendant or allow them any access to it, that they understand that if they do give firearms to the defendant, it's a misdemeanor of the second degree, um, and that the defendant, that if the defendant is a family or household member of the third party, that they will store the firearm in a gun safe, that the defendant will not have access or be permitted access, or that they'll store the firearm outside of the third party's home. Of course, the third party also is subject to having a background check to ensure that they are legally eligible to receive firearms prior to any return. Um, so this new provision sets in, in place in case firearms get relinquished that aren't actually defendants. Um, and sometimes that's, you know, if there's a hunting cabin and the defendant is just turning everything over and isn't differentiating or something like that, this could be a, a way that the other party can, or, or the third party may be able to come in um, and request that. Uh, we do have a question. So is there a minimum amount of time the defendant must be incarcerated? Statute does not specify anything about the time frame for incarceration, only that it be filed um, from 90 days from when they will be released or were released. So um, there's no, no other time frame specified in the statute. Thanks, Jerry, for that question. Um, there are, when we're talking about the third party seeking to get return of their firearm, um, there is, okay, that, 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 that would allow for the court then to have, I would hope that there is notice to the plaintiff so they can also participate, but the statute doesn't specify that at this point. So we'll have to see how that plays out um, if and when these get filed. Okay, moving on to the next change. Returning the firearms to defendants. So um, I think across the state, there's a couple different ways that firearms are returned to defendants. Um, some counties require the defendant to petition the court and obtain an order that then goes to the sheriff. Of course, there is the requirement for background checks. So um, this changes some of that up. And what it sets forth is that at the expiration of the protection order, the defendant completes what is um, going to be created by the sheriff, a weapons return form. Well, the sheriff or the appropriate law enforcement agency, wherever the relinquishment has occurred. And so the defendant will fill this form out and return it to that office that has the firearms when the, the, the order is either dismissed or expired. Um, and then the conditions have to, certain conditions have to be satisfied in order for that agency to turn the firearms back over. So, 
Um, if the firearms were used in a crime, they won't be, if they're evidence of some kind of crime and the criminal process is still ongoing, those won't get turned over. The defendant has to have no other prohibition, which um, would be something that you would see when the sheriff gets the clearances from PICS or NICS, which is, PICS is the Pennsylvania State Police's instant criminal check, and NICS is the national instant credit check, or background check system, sorry, not credit. Um, and then, of course, the plaintiff gets notice um, if the defendants, of the defendant's request for the return. So, um, that will likely need to come from the entity that gets the weapons return form, um, whether it's the sheriff or the municipal police or the PSP. And I know, um, I'll talk a little bit more about it later, but PFAD is working on getting some of these forms put in place so it'll be easier for folks to track that weapons um, relinquishment as well as return. So um, now if the defendant, the court says, or, or the agency, um, when they do their weapons return form, if the agency says, nope, sorry, you don't meet the required conditions and we're not returning them, the defendant is able to petition the court and appeal the decision. Um, and then that petition would need to be served on the sheriff, plaintiff, and the DA. And then um, the judge would have to hear, there's no specific time frame set for having any kind of hearing or what kind of process is going to happen with that, just that um, they can appeal to the court and that um, that must be served on the plaintiff, sheriff, and NDA. Um, and so I think that's something that on a local level, you'll, you'll have to talk to your courts and see how they're going to do that, if they're going to, um, you know, just roll that into the kinds of hearings, you know, in cases where they have the, the docket is already PFAs and they just roll these hearings into that kind of day as well. I'm not sure. So I imagine that'll be more locally driven. Okay. Another provision that um, is included because relinquishment of firearms can still happen to a dealer as opposed uh, a licensed firearms dealer as opposed to the sheriff or law enforcement. And now, um, so those provisions haven't changed in terms of how that all works, but the change is that um, a dealer is permitted to charge reasonable fees. For accepting and storing those firearms, other weapons, or ammunition. So that's a new piece that was added. Okay, so Jill, this is this is for you. You asked about um, transferring to third parties for safekeeping, and the law has changed greatly in this area. A defendant cannot, no longer able to transfer to any, just any person. Um, they have the only two entities they can transfer firearms to for third party safekeeping is an attorney at law or the commercial armory. See, I told you that definition was going to come back into play. Um, and with that, they have to either one has to acknowledge they're not a third that the third party is not a family or household member. Um, and so in this way, we have a really big change to the statute because previously we had the ability of a defendant to transfer their firearms to pretty much anyone, as long as that person 
um, did not have a PFA against them or had not filed a PFA against them before and was lawfully eligible to have firearms. And that was pretty much it. So um, that was a real safety issue for a lot of people. There were some fatalities arising from some defendants using that safekeeping process. So um, this was a big deal to have changed. Um, I'm, I'm not certain what attorneys at law are going to want to take on people's uh, firearms, but, you know, they, they must exist out there or that would not be a part of this provision. Uh, I can tell you that um, if they do, there has to be a written agreement between the attorney and the um, defendant, basically um, outlining that the firearms can be relinquished to the attorney upon the express written condition that firearms will be returned to the defendant or otherwise transferred only if in strict conformance with the applicable law. Same kind of um, written statement is required if they turn it over to a commercial armory. Um, and so I imagine those forms will also be created as we move forward with um, implementation of the amendments. Okay, let's see. Uh, we'll, just one last caveat to this. Um, interestingly enough, there is a penalty that if the commercial armory fails to secure the firearms, they um, face forfeiture of their federal and state licenses. So, um that's that's an interesting piece that's added in here and i imagine um will maybe make it harder for people to use commercial armories i'm not sure they'd want to undertake that liability but i guess we'll see how that plays out um as we move into the new law okay so there is a section on record sealing um that allows for a person who Oh, okay, got a question going back to my prior slide. Thanks, Liz. Um, her question is, does it matter if the attorney has a personal relationship to the defendant? And what if the attorney fails to secure the firearm and do they also lose their license? Uh, no, there is no provision in here regarding um, any penalty to the attorney. There cannot be a family or household relationship between the attorney and the, um, the defendant that has to be acknowledged but there's no other information within the statute regarding their relationship um oh i apologize there is one other they have to actually be um oh goodness where is it they have to actually have an attorney client relationship let me find the right language so i can make sure i'm i'm uh, yeah so the attorney has to, and the defendant are in an attorney-client relationship. So um, meaning that they have, they're not, it's not just some attorney they've turned to who they know and said, please take my firearms. There actually has to be that relationship um, consummated. So thanks for your question, Liz. All right, so record sealing is only for agreements. And um, the individual has to prove with clear and convincing evidence that they had no other PFA agreements or orders against them. They didn't violate the order that they had agreed to previously. That 10 years has elapsed since the expiration of that agreed to order. 
and they're not they haven't convict they haven't been convicted of certain offenses where the victim is a family or a household member and those offenses relate to domestic violence type offenses specifically um, in the statute it talks about 18 PACS um, subsection 2711 which relates to probable cause arrests in domestic violence cases and then it further um, includes any offenses that are similar to that Pennsylvania um, offense under any of the laws of the states, U.S. or its territories. So, kind of broad in that regard um, for conviction. So, um, and that's just stealing from the public. Additionally. Um, Within the, the process to seal their record, the defendant has to serve the district attorney and the plaintiff within 10 days of filing the position. And those entities, plaintiff or defendant, can file objections within 30 days. But if there are no objections, the court is permitted to grant the petition without any hearing so long as the requisite criteria is met. If there are objections, then the DA and the plaintiff have the right to be heard at a hearing. Lori, I'm going to go ahead with eight minutes left of the webinar and launch the second poll for attorneys who are requesting CLE credit for this webinar. If you could please respond now, um, that would be great. The poll will be up for two minutes. And feel free to go ahead, Lori. Thanks. Thank you. Okay, so there's another law that was passed in 2018, Act 92. It pretty simply, um, put in place a requirement for a plaintiff to include information in a petition um, about any founded or indicated reports of child abuse that involve the defendant. And then the second piece is that the notice and hearing in order must include um, notice to the defendant that having an order in the protection order under the protection order chapter can have an impact to the defendant in relating to Child Protective Services Act under Chapter 63. Um, and these, I don't know if, uh, if anyone has already looked at the new forms, but this, is, this has been um, one of the big additions to the forms petition and the, um, <clears throat> And the plaintiff is also required to say what agency, if known. Um, what county's court or child protective service agency issued the founded or indicator report. So those are both now part of the petition and the notice has already been amended through the civil rules to incorporate that. Um, would it only be for kids related to those parties or any child? I'll be honest, I believe it's for any child. Um, but let me let me just double check the language. Um, yeah, it's pretty broad. Has defendant been determined to be a perpetrator in a founded or indicated report under the Child Protective Services Law? It's uh, it's in the section and the petition where the you the plaintiff is asked has the defendant been involved in any criminal court action, and then um, if yes, are, is the defendant currently on probation? So um, 
I think it's broad that it wouldn't necessarily have to be related to the children of the parties. Um, are the new forms available anywhere yet? Yes, the next slide, I have the um, link to that coming up. Um, so right here, you can see the PA Bulletin published those. Um, FAD, again, is working to incorporate them as we speak. They will be ready for the um, for the um, go date, go live date of April 10. Um, and so if you either click this link or um, copy and paste it into your um, webinar or your web browser, you should be able to access those and take a look at everything. Um, I know here in, in Lancaster where I work mainly out of um, and in some of the other communities, there have been discussions already around sort of implementing and these kinds of things. So on the local level, you may want to contact um, if you have a stop team or your local DV task force and see what, um, if anything, how, how they're planning to implement and if they're going to be ready for the April 10th effective date in terms of the use of the forms. Ellie asked, does this exclude of reports that are determined unfounded? Um, I guess this is going back to the language of this slide. And Ellie, I, in reading what the form says to you, it just says, have, has the defendant been determined to be a perpetrator in a founded or indicated report? So I would read that to mean that if it's unfounded, it's not something that needs to be um, included. Okay, so again, here's where the forms can be found. Um, those came out pretty quickly, so um, it's good being ready as a state is nice right um, and there's the link to accessing them and then um, oh just to let you also know um, my understanding from FAD I spoke to some folks at the sorry PFAD as most people know it um, this morning and they like I said they're putting in some different pieces to help PSP um, monitor and track um, firearms relinquishment and return um, and their forms are like I said on uh, ready for the go live date um, they're also in the process of training law enforcement um, around these new provisions so that's really good and then um, I have heard also that the coalition is planning to put together um, sort of a one-page or two-page kind of outline of the um, changes as well as a um, newsletter, a, a STOP technical assistance newsletter about the changes. That should be out soon. Um, then um, that's pretty much it. I mean, I know we went through a lot of information pretty quickly, um, and I'm sure there are still a lot of unknowns around some pieces of these new provisions that will play out in the courts um, over the next couple of years. Um, and so that's always an interesting endeavor to follow. Um, but I, if anyone has any additional questions, I'm happy to entertain them now. And I cannot believe it. I've got two minutes left to go. I did it in an hour. Thank you all so much for um, your engagement and questions. And I hope you found the information useful. The PowerPoint Kelly just put back up 
in the chat box. Um, and I will, um, let's see, I'll find the, um, uh, I'll find my file that has the ATF um, bench card for you all to have a copy of. Um, Uh, and if I don't find it right away because I don't want to keep people waiting, I will send it to Kelly and ask her to send it out to folks. Um, but this is me. This is my contact information and my cats. Uh, Kismet is standing in the window, and that's Flash all ready for bed. I have, think he wanted me to read him a bedtime story. So thank you again for all of your participation. I hope you found it useful, and good luck as you move forward implementing these new laws. Thank you so much, Lori, for taking the time to do this for us this afternoon. Um, and have a great weekend, everyone.